Hello, team, and welcome to Bureaucracy. I'm your host, Emily Gross, and this is the first podcast of the new year of 2023, and we are so excited today to have Teresa Cardinal-Brown. She is the Managing Director of the Immigration Cross-Border Policy Department at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Teresa, thank you so much for being with us. I am very glad to be here, Emily. Thanks. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about you and what you do, and why should we trust you? <laughs> That's a good question. Don't trust anybody. No. Um, so I've been at the Bipartisan Policy Center for about nine years, but I've been working on immigration policy for over 20 years. Um, so uh, oh, wow. like I said, I've been at BPC for about nine years. Before that, I uh, did policy consulting for a couple of years. I spent about seven years working inside government. I worked for the Customs and Border Protection Agency and Department of Homeland Security under mm -hmm. uh, President George W. Bush and into the first part of the Barack Obama administrations. I have worked at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce on immigration and border policy. I worked at the American Immigration oh, wow. Lawyers Association uh, and started way, way, way Checked back in all the those day boxes. Uh, at law firms where I filed a lot of immigration petitions. Uh, so I've been doing a lot of different awesome. things for a long time. I, I joke and say I've done probably every immigration job there is in Washington, D.C., except working on Capitol Hill. And now I'm just too old for that. Yeah, no. Especially with what's going on right now. Yeah. Are you kidding? 13th, 14th vote? Who knows? You know what they say? First, you don't succeed. 14th times the charm. Yeah. Uh, but OK, awesome. Incredible background. So lucky and happy to have you. We'll um, so let's get started. First of all, what are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking a Sam Adams winter lager Lovely. in my Washington Nationals koozie. Gotta represent. Because I'm a big Nats fan. <laughs> I am. Um, but it seemed appropriate to drink something wintry in January. 100%. Although, I don't know about you, but although global warming's bad, global warming winter has been very lovely. <laughs> It's been kind of strange because we had like really, really cold and then 60 degrees the next it's week. So like weird. that's the thing that makes me my and, my, yes, you know, my body just doesn't know what to do with that kind of rapid change of temperatures. Neither, neither does mine. And that's why today I'm having a very, very, very large Modelo. Um, so they're talking about immigration and we're going to be talking all about the southern border. U.S.-Mexico went for a Mexican beer. And go, I very, wanted very it's such a big topic. I decided to need an extra big beer. Get, get <laughs> the you. get the large one. Yeah. Exactly. Classic. Works every time. All right. So good. Immigration is one of those hot topics going on right now. It is everywhere. The border crisis is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds and a forefront of every politician's mind. So mm -hmm. Can you give us just a brief background of what's going on at the border and why is everyone talking about it right now? <laughs> um, so I, I think it's to understand what's going on at the border now, you have to kind of understand what the border has looked like in the past. Um, in, in very brief, um, we have more people arriving at the border from more different places around the world uh, that are including you know, families and kids and a lot of people seeking asylum, looking for protection um, than we have ever really seen at the U.S.-Mexico border before. So for most of our history at patrolling the U.S.-Mexico border for immigration, and by the way, that didn't start till the beginning, uh, like 1920s, right? Before that, we really didn't patrol the U.S.-Mexico border okay. for immigration. So it's worth noting that. Mm -hmm. But since the time we've been patrolling the U.S.-Mexico border for immigration purposes, 90 plus percent of everybody we ever encountered at the border were Mexicans. Um, and they were usually adult males uh, who were trying to sneak into the country to look for work. 
Um, and for many, many decades, it, what usually happened is Mexicans would come into the country and they'd work for a while and then they'd go back to Mexico. Um, and so there was sort of this regularized, right. if you will, circular unlawful migration that happened at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, but at the beginning of the, the I, I'd say at the beginning of the 21st century, in the 2000s, we really started cracking down extremely heavily at the border. We started in the 1990s um, because we had seen huge numbers, like 1.6 million people in the 1990s, um, you know, 2 million or close to 2 million, um, not quite, uh, in the early 2000s. And so it was a really big issue, but again, mostly Mexicans. So we spent a lot of money over a lot of years um, and really put in a lot of enforcement at the U.S.-Mexico border, a lot more Border Patrol agents, a lot of technology, a lot of uh, infrastructure, including fences and walls and barriers. Um, you know, we, we passed laws that punished people for entering illegally, that, that restricted them from future immigration if they had done that. And that worked pretty well, particularly after the Great Recession, <laughs> of 2008 because we didn't have a lot of jobs right. there weren't a lot as many people wanting to come to the united states to work right so we saw really significant right. declines and you know for you know from about you know mid 2000s to the mid 2010s immigration at least in terms of the number of people that we encountered at the u.s mexico border was really relatively low it was like 200 300 a year like that's not a lot compared to 1.6 million wow but no, then it started coming up again. And and it started coming up around 2013 and 2014 when we first started seeing unaccompanied kids, mainly teenagers, without mm -hmm. their parents from Central America, not from Mexico, but from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras coming to the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, all of the immigration processes, our, our infrastructure, the Border Patrol stations, and how we dealt with people we encountered, and the laws of how we deal with them under immigration law were created with the assumption that most people we could very quickly send back to Mexico. If you're Mexican, and you don't have the right to stay in the United States, we could send you back to Mexico very quickly. And we did that thousands and thousands and thousands of times a month. But if you weren't from Mexico, first of all, Mexico doesn't have to take back anybody who's not Mexican. They're not required right. to under any law unless they agree to. So we couldn't automatically send non-Mexicans right. back to Mexico. And then we had created in our law. When you say send them back, do you mean like putting them? Deport them. Sorry, question. Deport them. When you say send them back. So like, is it like on a plane, a bus? Is it just being like, all right, everyone get on a bus. Yeah, so so when you, place. when someone's not. Okay. authorized to stay in the United States when they arrive illegally between a port of entry, they can be deported. Um, and if they are deported, they're usually sent back to their own country. And in the case of Mexico, sending them back to Mexico, if they arrived at the land border is a matter of driving them, you know, a couple miles to the nearest port of entry, and literally right. watching them walk back across into Mexico. Um, and so, and we had these procedures called expedited removal that allowed most Mexicans to be sent back to Mexico within a matter of half a day or less from the time they were arrested, right? So, you know, we didn't need lots of places to hold people. We didn't need, you know, a lot of people right. to process them because the process was relatively quick and people were sent back. Um, 
But if you weren't from Mexico and you were arrested at the border, you could still be deported back to your home country if you didn't have another um, uh, reason to stay in the United States, such as asking for asylum. We'll get to that. Um, but we had to take you into custody long enough to arrange to send you back to your country, wherever that was. We couldn't just send you back to Mexico, even that's even though that's where you came from, because the international laws and treaties don't allow or don't require any country to take back into their territory anybody who's not their citizen. So unless a country agrees to take someone who's not their citizen, we can't just we couldn't just send them back across the border, even though they had come across the border. And over the years, to protect kids, especially from human trafficking, which is a very serious issue when kids are on against their will, you know, brought across international borders, right. we created laws that were specially to deal with unaccompanied kids to make sure that they weren't trafficked. We wouldn't send them immediately back. We would take them into custody. We would interview them. We would bring them before an immigration judge to give them an opportunity to ask for protection in the United States, because if we were to immediately send them back into the hands of people who brought them, we might be sending them back in the hands of traffickers, right? So we have a we had a whole other set of laws that was just right. for dealing with kids who didn't come with their parents. Then we saw not just the kids from Central America coming, but their families. And during the second half of the Obama administration, suddenly, families, family units from Central America, parents and kids, sometimes aunts and uncles and kids or grandparents and kids were showing up at the border and turning themselves into border patrol and saying, I want to ask for asylum. Now, our rules about mm -hmm. sending people back to their countries under expedited removal have an exception. If you tell authorities that you're afraid of going back, that you might be persecuted, that okay. triggers a review that would allow you to apply for asylum if you meet a threshold interview called a credible fear interview. So it's an exception to that rapid deportation process. And again, if the number of people claiming protection or fear is small compared to the overall number of people we're encountering at the border, that process functioned pretty well. I mean, there were there are definitely people who would argue that credible fear interviews weren't always given and there were problems, but but it, but we were able to manage it. What started happening is more people started arriving such that it became the majority of people that Border Patrol were seeing. And the majority of people were looking for a Border Patrol agent to wave them down and stop them so that they could take them into custody so they could ask for this asylum protection. Suddenly, Border Patrol had all of these families with young kids that they were having to deal with in their Border Patrol stations. And a Border Patrol station looks very much like your local police precinct, right? It's not a place for families and kids. It's got individual jail cells for holding people. It's got benches with, you know, places to handcuff people to sit in front of a computer while you're being booked in, basically. Um, and again, that right. was fine when we were dealing with adults who we were sending back to Mexico rel relatively. So soon this kind of overwhelmed things. So since the Obama administration and through the Trump years, what has happened is a 
very large percentage. In some years, the majority of everybody encountered at the border were not Mexican, were not single adults, were not trying to evade apprehension, but were turning themselves in and were asking for asylum. So suddenly this process that was kind of an exception to the rule became the rule and we did not have the the capacity to deal with it. So that's when you may remember like the kids in cages back in the Obama era where they built these chain link rooms because they, they they had, they had to rent warehouses to put people in because the Obama era, I thought that was the Trump era. It started under Obama (laughs) because that's when we first started seeing the families and the kids. It continued under the Trump administration And then Trump, to try to deal with these issues, implemented a whole series of new policies. So something called Remain in Mexico, or the Migrant Protection Protocols, which used a previously very little known and almost never used portion of immigration law to say that, okay, we'll let you make your asylum claim in the United States after you turn yourself in, but you can't wait in the U.S. We're going to send you back to Mexico to wait there. And that was why it was called Remain in Mexico. And the Trump administration processed tens of thousands of people back into Mexico under that program, where sometimes they had to wait years until their cases were heard. Now, that created, you know, tent camps in places along the border. The Mexican government wasn't very happy about this. The the people that were waiting in Mexico were preyed upon by criminals and corrupt officials and kidnappings were happening a lot. So there was a lot of issues and not all of them could get back in in time for their court cases. There was a lot of issues. Following that, then came what we remember is the child separation policy, where to try to deter people from coming they said, if you arrive with kids, we're going to prosecute the parents, which means separate the kids from the parents while the parents go off to court. And they didn't have any plan for reuniting them later, oftentimes deporting the parents. But the kids were now in that unaccompanied minor situation and in their own process in the United States. Uh, again, thousands and thousands of families separated under that policy until the Trump administration rescinded it. But most of those families were not reunited until Biden came in. And there's still a few hundred that haven't been. The last thing the Trump administration did after COVID came around in March of 2020 was use a public health law, Title 42, which is the name of the U.S. code that covers public health, Title VIII is the name of the U.S. code that covers immigration, to say that under this public health law, the head of the Centers for Disease Control has the ability to deny entry to people, goods, or conveyances if there is a public health risk to the United States. So the Trump administration issued this order to use that authority and say anybody who arrives at a land port of entry or between ports of entry who does not have documents, who's not authorized to come in, can be summarily sent back out of the country. And in conjunction with this order- Without an asylum hearing. Without an asylum hearing, without any opportunity to ask for any protection whatsoever. In conjunction with this, the, the Trump administration managed to get Mexico to agree to take back to Mexico the Central Americans from uh, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador that arrived and were sent back under Title 42. So for the first time, Mexico agreed to take back non-Mexicans 
under this Title 42 authority. Um, Why did they the last to do thing? That? Yeah, they they tried to do some other things that were blocked in the courts, like banning people from eligibility for asylum if they had crossed through any other country before coming to the border. Um, that was eventually blocked in court, and that's then an the interesting Biden point you bring up. Took it down. Yeah, yeah, that's called they call that the transit ban. Yeah. But also they, they go ahead. But it's also pretty reminiscent of what Biden just. Uh, <clears throat> released. Oh, you noticed that, did you? So we'll we'll talk about that in a minute. Oh, I did. Oh, yeah, you, I you did. noticed that. Yeah. So yeah, we'll unpack that yeah. in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, some other things the Trump administration did is they 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 um, negotiated agreements with Guatemala and El Salvador, at least, um, to return anybody to those countries without giving them a chance to apply for asylum under another provision of law that says if somebody can be at can ask for asylum in another country they that we can return them so-called a safe third agreement now technically we only have currently a safe third agreement with canada that we've had for about 30 years um we never had agreements with anybody mm -hmm. else but part of the rule part of that rule is that those countries have to be actually a place that offers a good asylum system for asking for protection. So Guatemala agreed to take back Salvadorans and Hondurans, but people were fleeing Guatemala and asking for asylum in the United States in at the Guatemala. same time. So a lot right. of people kind of criticize <clears throat> these policies as well. They, they weren't used as much as these other policies. And frankly, once Title 42 was put in place and Mexico agreed to take back these other non-Mexicans, that was the number one means by which the Trump administration was managing everybody who arrived at the border for, you know, since, since March of 2020. Um, a lot of people are saying that, well, the numbers went down in 2020 substantially. And so Trump succeeded, but I think that that is not fully the truth in part because it was also COVID and people were afraid of traveling because of COVID. And yes, these new policies kind of depressed the arrivals for a while, but I say depressed, it didn't, it didn't end them because the numbers started going up again right. in the fall of 2020 before the election, before the US election. So it wasn't like, oh, Biden, like nobody knew who was gonna win, but they, the numbers were starting to come up because COVID really impacted the economies in Central America and South America and that was causing more people to come. So then we started seeing in 2021, not just these Northern Triangle countries from Central America, but Haitians. And we remember the Haitians in Del Rio, Texas, who were crossing the river and Border Patrol on horseback yeah. was engaging with them. We, you know, uh, the Biden administration with, started using with, Title 42. Which, uh, they that wasn't exactly yeah. what happened, but they the denied pictures that they, weren't you, good. Let me just say the pictures did yeah. not look good. The uh, pictures were horseback. Great. Yeah. The pic pictures of people it was not a you know, in uniform photo. on horseback, you know, chasing down, you know, people. So the pictures yeah. weren't great. But but the the reality was that the Biden administration essentially continued to rely on Title 42 um, to manage what was now an increasingly diverse number of people coming to the border. So we started with the Haitians that were adding to the Central Americans. Then we started seeing... Cubans and Nicaraguans and a lot of Venezuelans. And so suddenly it wasn't just about these three countries from Central America, it was about the whole hemisphere. Oh, and then we started seeing Cameroonians and Indians and Russians and Ukrainians and Romanians. 
right. and Congolese and people from all around the world. And so, the, and everybody mostly turning themselves in seeking asylum. So that brings us to where at we are today, the where the last the year we had border. at the Mexican American border. And, and so, you know, that brings us where we are today, where last year we had almost 2 million encounters from 100 plus countries around the wow. world, significant numbers, majority, not necessarily from Mexico or even the Northern Triangle. And from countries like Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua that we don't have diplomatic relationships with and couldn't send them back to those countries. People back. Because we don't have a way to deport people there. Mexico, until recently, would not take them back. Um, and so that's what's been happening. And, and so this crisis that really started in the mid-2010s has just continued to grow for the last decade. Um, and successive administrations have tried a lot of different things to try to manage it, but I think they none of them have succeeded, at least not succeeded fully or for long periods of time. And now we're in a position where understanding that, according to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, there are more people moving throughout the world than at any time in, in modern history, looking for someplace else to live and be safe. Um, they're fleeing, wow. yes, despotic governments, they're fleeing war, they're fleeing climate change, they're fleeing famine, they're fleeing crime uh, and criminality and gangs. Um, they're not just looking for a, a place where they can you know, earn a few more bucks. These are people who are increasingly desperate that really believe they cannot live where they, were, where they came from and are looking for a place where they can survive. Um, and so I think that the traditional means that most countries, including the United States, have used to try to manage irregular migration at the border is this idea of prevention through deterrence. We'll make it harder for people to cross. We'll have penalties that will deter people from coming. We'll, we'll prosecute them. And somehow we'll make it harder, hard enough and, and, and scary enough that they won't try. And I think that that doesn't work with what we're seeing now. It's just a different time in a different world. And we haven't really I also think it's pretty telling that how we do people are that. so scared. They're yeah. so scared. And, uh, think, and, and you know, yeah. you see it when you see these interviews right. with the migrants and they say, you know, if I go back home, I will die or my child will be killed or my daughter will be raped right. and kidnapped. Or, you know, this isn't about, oh, I can make more money for my family if I come to the United States and work. It's literally... It's survival. I, it's survival. It's survival. Um, and they, you know, they know that it's going to be hard. They know that they're going to be preyed on by criminals. They spend thousands of dollars to criminal smuggling organizations to try to make this trek. Mm -hmm. They're robbed of just about everything they own on the way. Uh, they're suffering kidnapping mm -hmm. and abuse and assault and rapes and all of these things. And it's not like they don't know that, but they're willing to go through all that for the chance of coming to the United States and getting protection. That makes me just want to start sobbing, <laughs> to be honest. It's so upsetting that people are, uh, yeah, in my ideal world, everyone would just live happily ever after. We'd all have open borders and just like live in a lovely ecosystem of you know hunting and gathering and everyone just does goods and services um so 
The world is a hard place, uh, and it's but it, it's harder. just yeah, it's just heartbreaking to know that people are putting risking their lives for a better chance at survival and at life, and it's still the journey that they're taking is so horrendous and so life threatening as well. Yeah. Um, so say what you want about the migration issue, but the fact that these people are willing to do this, they think says a lot. Yeah. Um, and the direty of the, of situations in a lot of these countries. Mm -hmm. Um, but besides that <laughs> brief moment, going to take a sip of beer and recenter myself. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. So, how many people are coming to the U.S. border every day recently? Uh, in the last couple months, hundreds of thousands a month, thousands and thousands a day. Wow. Uh, records. Okay. Records keep getting set and broken. Um, and it, you know, for many years, it, the epicenter of all this was in southeastern Texas, the so-called Rio Grande Valley from Brownsville over to uh, Del Rio. Um but now we're seeing El Paso and Yuma, Arizona, and even in California, like it's, it's, you know, kind of a, across the border. Um, and, and, and where migrants are crossing, it, it's kind of hard to understand why they're choosing certain areas to come because they're coming on mass, right? Um, so El Paso had thousands, thousands right. of Nicaraguans over the last month. Why, why did so many Nicaraguans go to El Paso? And, and it's, it's not that easy to kind of understand the mass decision of thousands of people that's really thousands of individual decisions that just sort of all coincide but what we do know is migrants talk right. to each other they're all on whatsapp they're all on their phones totally. they're getting you know information from the latest people to come plus they're listening to the smugglers that are guiding them and trying to kind of glean and somebody said oh well if you get to yuma you can probably get in and like okay well we'll try that because it's not like they know yeah. what our laws really are and they keep changing, by the way, at the border. This is the other thing that makes it really hard is that both all presidents, President Obama, President uh, Trump and President Biden, every time they've tried to put various measures in place at the border, they've been sued. And so the courts have increasingly been stepping in to say you can or can't do these certain things at the border. And that means that the what the, the actual policies in place at the border keep changing and change kind of quickly and rapidly, like Title 42. Uh, the Trump administration was sued over Title 42. Um, the, uh, you know, one court in Louisiana ordered the Biden administration to keep it in place when earlier this year they wanted to take it, or early in 22. Sorry, we're a year now, later now. Uh, early in 2022, I, they'd want to take it down. And a court in Texas ordered them to, or sorry, a court in Louisiana ordered them to keep it in place. Fast forward five months, a court in D.C. says, nope, this is illegal. You have to take it down. Then some of the states that sued in Louisiana went to the D.C. court and said, let us intervene because we think it needs to stay in place. D.C. appeals court said no. So they went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, OK, well, we'll keep Title 42 in place until spring. <laughs> I just saw, I think it's March 1, they'll hear uh, this argument yeah. about whether or not these states can intervene in the D.C. case. So at least for now, the courts are keeping Title 42 in place. So the Biden administration is going right. to use it. Before we continue on until uh, to talk about Biden's new immigration plan and all 
the decisions made there. So you mentioned the asylum process and hearings on fear and safety and stuff like that. I would love if you could go a little bit more in depth into that because I think a lot of people don't know what that is and what goes on behind the scenes. And I find it very interesting and also makes me feel a little weird and funky to be like, all right, prove to us that you're in danger and that you're scared and your life's at risk, you know? Yeah. But so would love to so, just hear you. Yeah, I mean, asylum, like a lot of parts of the American immigration system, is complicated. Um, the way our law has evolved and the standards to get asylum have evolved over years of court cases and precedent decisions and challenges, as well as the law and regulations. Um, but in general, a few things to understand. Who qualifies for asylum? Under U.S. law and, frankly, under international law, the definition of a refugee and a refugee and an asylum seeker are the same, an asylum, asylee are the same thing. The only difference is where they apply. So a refugee is somebody who's outside their own country oh, in another country and seeking to be settled in a third country. And their case is decided before they come. Okay, so a refugee, hmm. their case is decided. Do they qualify under U.S. law as a refugee while they're still outside the United States, usually in a refugee camp somewhere around the world? And then the U.S. government brings them to the United States after they've been approved, right? An asylee is somebody who arrives in the United States first and then says, I want protection. And if they qualify gotcha. for that same standard after they're already in the United States, then they get to stay. If they don't, then they get deported. Okay, so that's the difference between refugee and asylee. It's just where they apply. But the requirement is that you have to show that you have been persecuted or have a well-founded fear of persecution on account of one of five criteria, race, religion, political opinion, nationality, or membership in a particular social group. Now, the definition of what is persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution um, has, is, is kind of convoluted in, in detail, but, but it's a standard you have to meet. Um, and those categories, I mean, four of them are pretty clear, race, religion, nationality, even political opinion. Like, are you being persecuted because you're a member of a political opposition to a government, right? Like those are the kind of traditional ones you think of. Right. Membership in a particular social group is the category that probably has the most, um, I won't say vague, but broadest potential definitions. Um, you could think of a minority uh, clan or tribe in a country. Um, you could think of a persecuted group like LGBT, LGBTQIA people in countries that outlaw those practices, right? That's a particular social group. Um, but some precedent decisions have said that women who are subject to domestic violence in countries that don't prosecute that could be considered a particular social mm. group in that context. So that last category is the one that could be quite varied. But that's the criteria. And you have to, the burden is on the person asking for asylum. They have to be both credible uh, that they have this fear and that the, that, that the conditions in their country and who they are, are make it basically more likely than not that they, that they would be persecuted or have been persecuted. Um, but you're right. You know, if you have just traveled, you know, thousands of miles 
uh, on foot through perilous jungles and across deserts and rivers to come to the United States, giving up everything you have um, to come to the United States and, and ask for asylum. Do you have evidence of this? Do you have proof of this? What documents do you like that? There's a lot there that's kind of a lot tends to rely, frankly, just on the testimony of the migrant who's asking for asylum and whatever other evidence they can provide from non-governmental organizations in their country or State Department country condition reports that kind of document that someone in their position could be subject to persecution, right? Like those are the things. A couple other things to understand about asylum. Unlike you might have thought you saw in movies, you can't ask for asylum at a U.S. embassy or consulate. You either go through the formal refugee resettlement program which is through the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and then the State Department Refugee Assistance Program and are processed that way, or you come to the United States and then ask for asylum. You can't show up at a US embassy or consulate somewhere in the world and ask for asylum there. That's that they don't they don't do that. We don't process asylum. It feels asylum like two very opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it we feels don't like do we that. Find a happy medium somewhere in the middle. Okay, great. Maybe we can. There's there's conversations about what that could be, yeah. but right now, those are the only two ways you mm -hmm. can ask for protection. Those you don't are the you don't have another option. So so people who say why didn't they just go to a consulate and apply? You can't. We don't do that. We just don't do that. The other thing to understand okay. about asylum cuz people think this all the time is, well, didn't they have to apply in the first country they entered that wasn't their own? Right? Why are they coming all the way to the U.S. if they're coming from El Salvador and had to go to Guatemala first or Mexico? Why didn't they apply in Mexico? First thing to understand is people are applying in Mexico. Mexico is also having record numbers of asylum applications, as are other countries in Central America like Costa Rica and Belize. Right? Like they're seeing record numbers too. So it's not just the United States. But there's no requirement in U.S. or international law that says that somebody seeking protection has to apply in the first safe country they get to. There's no requirement anywhere mm. that says a migrant has to do that. Now, why it gets confusing, remember I mentioned this something called safe third agreements? Here's yes. the real. All international refugee and asylum policy is generally based on these international treaties that the UN uh, has negotiated, and the United States is, is signatory to some of them. Under those treaties, the this, this signatory countries agree to something called non-refoulement, which is a big fancy French term that means we will not send somebody back to a place where they will be persecuted. We will not. Hmm. It's illegal for us to send somebody straight back to a place where they will be persecuted. So since that is our commitment, that's why we have these processes that allow somebody to make this claim and try to prove their case so that when or if we deport them, we can say, hey, they had a chance to claim and they didn't meet the requirements. We don't believe we're sending them back to persecution, okay, under our laws. But doesn't Title 42 the absolve that? Oh, you, you know, you're, you're getting ahead of me again. <laughs> um, that's exactly what the basis of the Sorry. court cases are. That, that Title 42... Gotcha is putting our that section of law above this these international obligations and therefore it's illegal. So that's what the court case gotcha. is about. But in general, okay. this non-refoulement provision has one exception. And that is we can send somebody to another country that is safe if that other country agrees mm. to accept them. And we have a treaty or agreement with that other country. One of the conditions though is that other country has to itself have 
a um, a recognized and effective ability for the person to claim asylum there. So if we don't think that the asylum system in a particular country is a good one, we theoretically can't have a safe third country agreement with them. And as I mentioned right now, the only country we have an agreement with is Canada. Um, gotcha. So essentially what a safe third country agreement does is it, it's not an obligation on the immigrant to apply in the first country they go to. It's a way for a country to limit which asylum applicants they have to process. And so you could think of it a little bit like burden sharing, right? So countries are saying, instead of everybody coming to the United States, we're asking other countries that have, you know, credible asylum programs to take on the burden of all these people around the world and share that burden so not everybody's coming here, right? So that's one way to look at safe third agreements. Um, but because the obligation isn't on the migrant, it's, it's a country to country kind of thing. There's no requirement that just because you've left your country and you get to a quote unquote relatively safe country, you have to apply there first. There's no exception under US law that says, if you cross through another country, you can't apply here, except, and here's where we get to where yeah. you said, Ex the Trump administration yeah. tried this. They tried to put an exception in the law to pass a regulation, not in the law, pass a regulation because they couldn't get the law changed in Congress. Try to pass a regulation to make somebody ineligible for asylum if they didn't apply in another country first. And as I said, the court struck that down. And as you mentioned, President Biden just this week, among the other things that they announced is that they're gonna be issuing a new proposed rule to do essentially the same thing that the Trump rule tried mm -hmm. to do. Um, yeah. Now we haven't seen this new before we yet. dive into we that. I have, like. Before we dive into that, I want to ask one more question about oh, asylum yeah. before we dive yeah, sure. so deep yeah. into the Biden. Um, oh, what happens how, when you get here well, and try so, to make that case? <laughs> yeah. Ha ha ha. Oh my God. So ridiculous. Um, okay. Well then I guess my one other question is, so like, let's say a migrant's coming from Guatemala and they cross into Mexico. How come Mexico doesn't, and they, but they don't want to file for asylum in Mexico. How come Mexico doesn't immediately deport the person back to Guatemala? That's a really good question. Mexico has had a okay. lot of different responses to the migrants coming through Mexico. I think one thing to understand, hmm. since historically Mexico has been a migrant sending country, they have never mm -hmm. been a country that has felt particularly obligated to interfere with migrants trying to get someplace else. Mexico traditionally even at uh, a lot of pressure and insistence from the United States of them trying to stop their own people from migrating north, refused to do so. So as a country, Mexico sort of recognizes the right of migrants to migrate. And so mm -hmm. it hasn't been sort of in their cultural or history or laws to really kind of crack down on this until Gotcha. More recently, and 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 as these numbers of people coming through, and so different governments in Mexico have tried different things. The last president in Mexico, and even at the beginning of his administration, the current president of Mexico, Lopez Obrador, uh, thought, well, we'll give these folks sort of uh, temporary work permits and let them work in Mexico until they can try to make their asylum claims in the United States. Uh, they they the current president ended up ending that because most of them were up in the northern part of Mexico. Um, 
And people in the northern part of Mexico were like, they're just competing for our jobs. We don't like that. Mexico really needed workers in the southern so part of Mexico. It's the same conversation in every Migrants wanted to stay there. Country. Right. No, the migrants didn't yeah. want to stay in southern Mexico because they wanted to get closer to the border where they might have a chance of applying. So that right. didn't work out. So they eventually kind of got rid of those work permit ideas. Um, they have tried to implement more restrictions at the U.S. Uh, at the Mexico-Guatemala border. One of the things they have said mm -hmm. is that they have to stop and kind of get some sort of formal pass or transit visa in Mexico. And for a while, a lot of Haitians were stuck in southern Mexico because they weren't processing these transit visas. And then they got really mad and just essentially started walking out of the territory. Um, Mexico also had some rules in place that said if you're going to apply for asylum in Mexico, once you apply for asylum, you have to stay in the jurisdiction that you applied. You can't move anyplace else in Mexico. And again, migrants were like, that's not really... There's nothing for me yeah, here. I sorry. can't work. I can't make money. Right. I, why am I staying here? Right. So I think, you know, this transition for Mexico has been a challenge for Mexico. I'm not going to say it hasn't. Um, and of course, criminal smuggling organizations and criminal drug cartels are now in bed with each other, making money off of all of this migration. And as we know, the drug cartels and criminal organizations in Mexico have been a challenge for Mexico for decades to manage. I mean, there was just this this week, today, actually, yeah, and yesterday, the, the arrest of, of yeah. uh, El, Chapo's, El Chapo's son and the firefights son. that broke out over this. So a lot of violence in Mexico by these cartels, right? So I would say that the Mexican government has is still kind of figuring out how do they really address and manage this. And one of the ways is by working with the United States to manage what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border. So to go back to what President Biden announced, um, you know, back yeah. in October, the Biden administration got the Mexicans to agree to take Venezuelans back under Title 42. But there was a caveat. Mexico said, we'll take people back only if you create more legal ways for them to come and ask for asylum. So they created this new parole program for Venezuelans based on what they did with the Ukrainian parole program sponsorship and things like that. And that has seemed to work in that the number of Venezuelans apprehended trying to illegally cross the border has plummeted. Um, but there's still a lot of Venezuelans kind of stuck in Mexico. And the numbers didn't match up. So the program could be 24,000 of these paroles for Venezuelans to come into the United States. And 24,000 Venezuelans could be returned to Mexico under Title 42, which was a small percentage of the total number. The expansion of this kind of parole program to Cubans and Nicaraguans and Haitians that was announced by the president this week um, has a similar one for one with Mexico. Mexico will take back those nationalities now, but only in the same numbers that the United States is willing to admit. So right now, that looks to be about 360,000 a year total for all those nationalities. Um, so 30,000 so a Mexico month. Right now is, yeah, Mexico is right now... Uh, really in kind of control of what the United States can do at our border. Interesting. <laughs> and that's a really interesting position for Mexico to be in. They can demand a whole lot of other things that Mexico might want uh, in foreign policy spheres yeah. because we kind of need them to help with our border issues. The migration, right. So yeah. let's, yeah. Uh, for how many uh, asylum applications are approved per year? 
or this most recent it year? It really varies. Yeah, it there's a lot of variation in that. So two types of asylum applications exist. People already in the United States can apply to U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services for asylum. That's called an affirmative asylum process uh, in that they already have some sort of status in the United States and they're asking for asylum once they're already here. Um, the other is what's called defensive asylum. So if you are in deportation proceedings or you're arrested coming across the border and you would be deported, you can ask for asylum in front of an immigration judge as a defense against deportation. And if you're granted asylum, of course, then you're not deported. But if you lose your asylum claim, then you are. Um, so, so, so there are different kind of approval rates between defensive and, uh, and affirmative asylum cases. In general, overall, about a 20, between 20 and 30% approval rate for asylum cases overall gotcha. over the last couple of decades. But it varies a lot by nationality. And it varies a lot mm -hmm. by the immigration judges. So even in one area, say Atlanta, you can have immigration judges that grant 95% of asylum cases and other immigration judges that grant 2% of asylum cases. So there, there's no kind of consistency. That's kind of, but if you look at, fucked up. Yeah. If but... you look at it in the aggregate, <laughs> if you look at it in the aggregate, the majority of asylum yeah. cases are not approved. Yeah. Ah, it's a bummer. <laughs> it's like one yeah, of those you're like, ah, yeah. yeah and for somebody right. who's fleeing for their life and 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 feels like they really are subject to persecution, it's, it's like it's a, a death sentence. A, that, no. Well, it, it can be, and there are cases of people who've lost their claims and gone back and died, um, or been killed. Um, yeah. I think it's life or death for them, such that any chance, even a twenty, thirty percent chance, is worth taking. That's the thing to understand, right? Like, if if that's your if that's your calculus, that twenty for thirty percent chance is worth taking. Again, going yeah. back to that idea that we're somehow going to deter people from coming, or like President Biden said, just wait where you are. Think about that for a second. What he just said: wait, wait where for you what? are to die yeah. until you can come through this other process. I, you know, again, I, I keep, I think that there's just a little bit of um, this not really getting the the dynamic at, at play here. And and I'm not going to say that the U.S. can't do anything and that our policies don't have any impact. That's that's clearly not true. Yeah. But I think that we consistently, and, and this is true, again, Democratic and Republican administrations, I feel like we consistently overestimate our ability to really impact in the long run the dis the migration decisions of the migrants um mm -hmm. like we may see, like we saw a decline in arrivals of venezuelans after this parole program but it's only been a few months with you know right title 42 when it was implemented in 2020 we saw a rapid decline at the border and then it started coming up again so i don't think we can say that any of these things is a magic bullet i don't think there's a magic bullet that will somehow yeah. make the border go back to what it was in the early 2010s. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I think the border is just fundamentally different now. The people coming are different. And we need to acknowledge that and respond in ways that acknowledge those differences and look for new ways to manage it. Yeah. It's, the migration issue isn't the – it's the result, but it's not the cause or the effect, you know? It's the – 
I mean, I guess it is the effect, but it's not the cause. It's there's so much turmoil going on in a lot of these countries and people's lives there's are at a risk lot of different and- things. There's a yeah, there's a lot yeah. of different things like you have to understand what's the motivation of the migrants. I think we in the United States, we mm-hmm. oversimplify things like why are they coming illegally? 100%. Why aren't they getting in line to get a visa? Hear that all the time. It's like because they don't, they don't want to okay, fucking we die. Can't... Well, <laughs> answer. It's not just that. <laughs> I mean, that's one that's that's one very simple answer. But even yeah, even think about it this way. Our legal immigration system requires you to have an immediate family member who's a U.S. citizen who can sponsor you. And that could take a couple years or more, depending on how close that relationship is. An employer in the United States who is willing to hire you and sponsor you for a green card. But if you... Which is an insanely long process, an expensive process. it, It can be very expensive and very long. But here's the other rub. If you're somebody who doesn't have a degree, and most of these migrants do not, um, there's a pitiful number of those visas available each year. And what employer never having met you is going to sponsor you for a green card for a job you've never had in the United States. And with only 5,000 of those visas available a year, we had 2 million people at the border last year. You do the math. Like how long is that going to take? Right. Four decades? Right. you know, a temporary work permit sounds great. And we're trying, the Biden administration is trying to expand the number of temporary work permits that could be available to some of these folks. But again, that's a job that is temporary. It's six months, eight months. It's and not a long-term solution. Right. So again, if you don't believe you can go home, why would you take a temporary job? Um, right. So our existing legal immigration system really doesn't fit these people at all the needs like they they just yeah. and the even if they people. understood any of that like the the needs of these people are not accommodated by our legal immigration system um no. and you know so the 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 only option they have is either illegally coming to the united states or this is the other thing that people don't realize it actually is actually a hundred percent legal to cross the border illegally and ask for asylum. Because under our asylum law, it specifically states that you are entitled to ask for asylum whether or not you have come in through an official port of entry. It says that in the law. (laughs) So they're not doing anything illegal if they turn themselves in and say, I want asylum. They're not doing anything illegal. Um, That's a funny so thing they that have the found, U.S. media fails to uh, include in their uh, – yeah, just a funny thing. Right, because we have these kind of black and white, like, lines, and, right. and that's what's – that's what, so, you know, some people call that a loophole. Some people say that's mm. how you protect people who are at risk, right? Right. And I think that's where the challenge is right now and where we have a lot of bashing between the parties, right, is that – You have people who say, we need to protect the ability of people who are really desperate and really need protection to get that protection, and we shouldn't put limits on it. And then you have other people who say, but we can't handle, we can't process everybody who thinks they might might qualify, even though most of them don't, or, or are using that as a loophole to get into the country, right? That's where the tension lies. And- we need the the problem is that we have got people who are like completely entrenched 
and saying we have to prevent them, we have to keep them from applying for asylum, we have to stop this, versus no, we can't limit this. And we're not able to move. We're not able to, to legislate. Congress, at the end of last session, tried. Uh, there was a bipartisan conversation around trying to pass something for DACA and DREAMers in exchange for doing some stuff at the border. And they couldn't, they couldn't get to that middle. They couldn't bridge that divide. But the gridlock in Congress, one, means that the status quo at the border keeps being the status quo at the border. It means that whatever policies any administration has tried or will try will almost 100% up at, end up in court. And so right. you know, somebody asked me, who is making immigration policy at the border right now? And I would say the courts are. The yeah. courts. The judges are making our policy. Interesting. And it's changing rapidly. And it's not, it's, it's ever evolving. And that's just creating more chaos. So we're not solving anything. So, what else? Is I laugh know? because um, <laughs> I can cry. Yeah, and that's why, and that's why we do this podcast with beer because it helps us talk about mm -hmm. these tough issues, and it makes it a little bit easier. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about this new Biden, Biden uh, uh, policies he just released because mm -hmm. it's a, it's interesting. Um, it's gotten it's a lot of pushback from people. Yeah. On his own party. Oh, yeah. uh, it's gotten a lot Actually, of Actually, he's gotten pushback from all, yes, all both sides. A lot of progressive. <laughs> he's, gotten, he's gotten pushback from everywhere. I would say everyone's unhappy everywhere. with something in it. Yeah, very few people uh, have said, yeah. oh, brilliant, you've got it. Great job. Yeah. Great job. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone has ever said that about a sitting president, but that's fair. <laughs> Give us the lowdown. So he announced... What I would, to give him a little bit of credit, I will give him a little bit of credit. He's been in office for almost two years. This is the first speech mm -hmm. he personally has actually given about the situation at the border. So, yay. Yes. About time. Woohoo! I think, <laughs> woohoo! Give me credit. Uh, two, right. it actually, he actually laid out what I would call the first, at least, attempt at a comprehensive policy strategy to address the border. And what I mean by that is it's a series of policies. It's not just one program. It's not just one thing. There were there were four major pieces of this announced, and they were all new policy ideas, um, some of which mm -hmm. are being implemented right now, some of which require regulation and other things are looking to the future. Um, but taken together, they're all an attempt to sort of address lots of different pieces of what's happening at the border. So the first thing is the thing we already yeah. talked about, that this parole program that had been used pretty successfully for Ukrainians and Venezuelans is now being expanded to Cubans and Haitians and Nicaraguans. Why those nationalities? Again, because those have represented a very large portion, sometimes the majority of people that have been encountered at the U.S.-Mexico border in the last five to six months. And they were from countries that we couldn't deport people back to. So they were the most mm -hmm. of who we were releasing into the country to wait in five-year backlogs for immigration court. Um, so by expanding the parole program, the administration is creating new, regular, orderly ways for people to ask for asylum without having to come to the border. Well, technically, they're asking for parole, which if they approve, get admitted to, well, get, get into the United States, get work authorization, and then they can apply for asylum in that affirmative category. 
um, which is a pro orderly process. Uh, it would allow them not to have to go all the way to the border, not to have to put themselves in harm's way. But there are requirements. And it's through an app. One and an the, app is cool. <laughs> there's an app. Um, there's an app for everything. There's an app to immigrate, ticket assignment in the United States. Yeah. And, yeah, um, and immigration. You have to have for... U.S. sponsors. Yeah, you have to have U.S. sponsors. So you have to have somebody in the United States willing to sponsor you financially to come to the United States. So this is very much in line with what we started with the Afghans when they were brought to the United States with the Ukrainian system. Basically, it allows people, not just government agencies, but businesses, schools, churches, and people, groups of people, families. You've got a big enough family, you've got resources, you want to sponsor somebody, have at it. Um, mm -hmm. So you have to have a US sponsor. You have to have not been deported from the United States previously. Uh, you have to pass background checks. So we have to assure that you're not a terrorist or a criminal or a danger. Um, you have to not have crossed into Panama or Mexico. So people the big who are one. already at the border do not qualify. So you either have to be coming from your own country or another country that's not on the way to the U.S. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, but if you're approved... You get to fly into the United States comfortably. <laughs> and once you're here, you have two years of parole, which is permission to stay. And you can apply for work authorization, which means you can support yourself and your family by working above board and find help to file your asylum application. And once you filed your asylum application, then you're in that process and you're, you, you're on the way. Um, so this is good. This is great. 360,000. That's more than all the employment-based immigration visas we gave out last year. That's a lot. <laughs> so that's, that's not well, bad. That's okay. a big expansion of sort of the legal ways that people can come into the United States and ask for protection. But these caveats of you have to have somebody in the United States willing to sponsor you or be able to be matched up with somebody. So if you don't have ties in the U.S. already... Figuring out how people are going to find each other to do that is is an issue. Um, you have to have a passport from your country. So if you don't have a passport for you or your family, you can't apply. Um, so there are, there are these requirements that for a lot of the migrants that have been coming, they're not going to be able to meet. So yes, it's great that we have these new legal avenues, but the restrictions may make them less really available to a lot of the people that are, are arriving now. And that might be part of the point, right? Probably that, is. You know, yeah. that, that's probably trying to limit the number of people come. The, the, that's, the, that's the carrot, right? You can come legally. The stick is if you've already crossed, you don't qualify. Um, and if you attempt to come to the United States outside of one of these programs, you will be returned to Mexico under Title 42. Now they've created a little bit of an exception, and that is right for right now, for some little bit of time, uh, we don't know how long, um, if you come to the border and and would be turned back under Title 42, you can say, oh, oh, wait a minute, I'm willing to go back and apply for this program and they'll let you go without any penalty and you can go apply. Oh, interesting. So, so they're getting okay. a little tiny kind of exemption for people who have already yes, here. So all the migrants the border, can have, but, the people that are there can have the moment. And, and people that have arrived recently have one sort of 
ability to go back outside the country and apply without being sent out. So yeah. they're, they're trying to manage this a little bit, but it's a little window. Um, so that's sort of the biggest part of the announcements. And, you know, we'll see. They, they touted how well the Venezuelan program worked at declining numbers of, at the border. But again, it's, it's almost too short a period to really know how much that program would have worked in the long run. It remains right. to be seen with this program too, right? Is, are the numbers enough? Could it be increased? And will those penalties really work? I'll tell you one thing we know is that when there's too tight a restriction on how people can legally apply, then they are more likely to legally cross. And one of the things we have seen is that there are a bunch of Nicaraguans in El Paso right now who did not turn themselves mm -hmm. into Border Patrol. So the smugglers are catching on to this and saying, okay, instead of doing that, we'll help you get around. So now they're stuck right. in the United States. They haven't been screened or vetted by anybody, so we don't really know who they are. They have no access to a formal process to decide if they can stay in the United States. They are here 100% illegally in the United States, undocumented. So they have no access to any formal mechanism to try to get legal until or unless they are arrested and, and put in deportation proceedings. So that's very problematic for them because their ability to right. actually get long-term protection is minimized. Um, and so I think that we're likely to see that over time. So it's too, like once you least... enter, let's say you enter illegally because you think that's the best option you have, right? Which yeah. based on what's going on is not an irrational thought. So once you enter and you're undocumented and you have not been accounted for or formally asked for asylum, is there any legal pathway in which you become a citizen? Almost none. Uh, partially because entering without inspection, crossing legally and avoiding all mm -hmm. immigration law is a disqualifier for most legal avenues. Um, again, gotcha. you, if you married a U.S. citizen and could get a waiver at some point in the future, maybe. I mean, there. The, the, let's put it this way. It's really, really, really hard and very, very unlikely for almost all of these people. Gotcha. Um, their best gotcha. chance might be to get arrested, put in deportation proceedings, and then apply for asylum there if they have an asylum case. Uh, they can ask for asylum. They, they can file for asylum, but the fact they entered they can and still ask. were okay. not admitted. It's not, a, it's it, not great it, for their it's, case. It's harder. It's not great for their yeah. case. They really don't have a lot of options. Um, so I think, you know, there's a lot to be seen. So that's, that's the first thing that was done. The second thing is that the asylum transit ban that we talked about, that was the second big part of the announcement is that mm -hmm. they are intending to promulgate a proposed regulation. Now, this is something different than when Trump did it. They're going to go through the full, we're going to propose a regulation. We're going to take comments in from the public. They will adjudicate the comments and then we'll issue a final regulation down the line. That's the longest process that they could take to create a new regulation. That probably means we won't see mm -hmm. that final and put in place until sometime later this year, maybe after the summer at the earliest. So, Interesting. you know, that's that's a long time out. But and we don't, haven't seen it yet, so we don't know all the details. But the way it was described, it did sound an awful lot like the Trump era rule that was struck down in court. And already some of the people who sued Trump over that are saying, we're going to sue the Biden administration over this. So this is going to end up in court, 100%. Yep. It's not even worth a dollar bet. Like, it's going to happen. A couple of other things. Um, they are also 
creating this new app, this CBP1 app. This is an app that actually CBP has been using for a while to mm. allow organizations, basically nonprofit, non-governmental organizations, to help migrants in Mexico who are particularly vulnerable. Maybe they have health conditions or are pregnant or have been subject to a lot of uh, uh, criminal activity in Mexico to apply for an exception to Title 42, come to a port of entry and be paroled to apply for asylum. And this CBP-1 okay. app is the mechanism that has been doing it. But CBP has been relying on these non-governmental organizations to kind of be the go-between between the migrants and CBP. Right. And that puts them in a, a bit of a challenging position because it's basically these non-governmental organizations, not even UN people, but like assistance organizations are trying to decide who they present to CBP. They're kind of adjudicating. And they haven't been very comfortable right. with that, although they're happy to try to help some people. They haven't been comfortable being the ones that kind of pick and choose who gets to go. Make those decisions. So with the, yeah. yeah. So the Biden administration said, we're going to open this up to migrants themselves. And at first, it's mm. going to be for migrants in, in northern part of Mexico. Eventually, it'll be for migrants that are further away to apply for an appointment to apply for asylum at a port of entry. Now, it's certain ports of entry. It's not any port of entry along the border. So they're trying to manage the number of people who can get in and where, you know, and how so that they're not interrupting regular traffic at these ports of entry. Um, but this is huge. This is really big because what we saw was when many Haitians were starting to be processed through this at ports of entry, the number of Haitians apprehended by Border Patrol between ports of entry precipitously dropped. Same for the Venezuelans. Interesting. So we think that this, and, and our organization has been saying for a long time, why aren't we opening the ports of entry? Why are we preventing people from coming? We should be able to do this. We did it for the Ukrainians, 10,000 in a matter of weeks. So we know that there's right. ability to do this. So this is huge that they're expanding that because that could be another really important way that people can apply. Now, it will depend on how long it takes to get an appointment. If it takes two and a half years to get an appointment, then are people going to wait two and a half years in northern Mexico or are they going to listen to the smuggler who says, come on, I'll get you across, right? Like right. this is what we have. This So we have to wait and see. But I do think it has the potential to be pretty important. Um, and we also know that the Biden administration is going to be talking to the government of Mexico. They have the North American Leaders Summit next week and they may be very well trying to ask the government of Mexico for help when Title 42 eventually comes down, because it will. It's a public health order. Right. No one is pretending it's about COVID anymore. <laughs> They're not even faking that. No. They're all admitting this is all about immigration. Mm. Um, you know, they, they know that. But so it's going to come down eventually. Yep. Um, and these all these agreements for Mexico to take people back are to take them back under Title 42. After Title 42 comes down, then the administration under immigration law has to let people have that chance to add a credible fear interview before they're deported. If they don't, or if they're excluded for some reason, will Mexico take them back then? And I think that's an ongoing conversation. And the capacity Interesting. of the Border Patrol and CBP to process people through that immigration process um, is going to be significant. Congress really didn't give them a whole lot more resources at the end of last year when they passed their omnibus funding bill. 
Um, and as I mentioned, they weren't able to pass any other legislation addressing how people are processed at the border. So, you know, a lot of this is it's it's a plan. I will give them credit. It's a plan. It's a pretty comprehensive plan. It's trying to address a lot of different things. Um, but the proof will be in the pudding, right? There's a lot of space between here right. and implementation. We have to see how the migrants react. We have to see, you know, this is great for Cuban, Haitian, Venezuelan, Nicaraguan people, but the El Salvadorans and Guatemalans and Hondurans are still being sent back. Um, right. Where the, what happens? And now we're seeing increases number of Ecuadorians and Colombians. What's going to happen with them? So like the nationality-based sort of policies are kind of playing, and I, I hate to use this term because we're talking about people, but it's a little bit of policy whack-a-mole. It's like, oh, these are the people yeah. that are giving us difficulty now, so we'll do something for them. And but we don't know if that's going to work for this next group of people. We don't know, who, you know, like it's it's kind of addressing right. the immediate issue, but not necessarily thinking about the long-term long solutions. Term. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, because I mentioned earlier, so, like there's a hundred plus different countries of nationality of people encountered at the border right now that are all trying to enter, except the only ones that you ever hear about are the Latin American countries, and you're like, I wonder why. Hmm. Um. <laughs> But that's my that's my two cents on that. Uh, so, is there anything that the bipartisan policy center believes would be solutions that allow for immigration to remain a humanity and merciful process that also adheres to the concerns of people along the border who are stressed about the influx of migrants? Yeah, I, we have. Um, I mean, the one thing I will say, and I, I think the Biden administration clearly gets this because you, you see a little bit, is that there is no single solution. There's no one thing we can do mm -hmm. that will suddenly make the border under control again and stop what's happening. Like, it's it's not going to happen. There's not, there, there's not a short-term quick fix because this has been evolving for a decade and we didn't get right. here overnight. We're not going to fix it overnight. And we have to recognize we're talking about millions of individual people whose individual circumstances are maybe similar, but individual. And so we're trying policies to address broad swaths of them, and it may or may not be a good fit for any particular group or person. So, you know, the thing about creating policies, you're trying to address sort of 80% of it, if you can, and then how do I manage the 20% that doesn't fit? into this into this mm -hmm. policy. In this case, I think we need to have a lot of different policies because we also have to recognize we can't solve this right at the border. Um, no. We need to think about, I mean, the president was correct when he came in office and asked Vice President Harris to help address the root causes in these countries. Ultimately, the, the answer is allowing people the safety to stay where they are, but. Right that's a long-term prospect, right? Like that, that could be decades. <laughs> we don't fix countries, you know, and the United States fixing countries in Latin America, we have all lots yeah. of history there. Emphasis on so, the quotes. So we need uh -huh. to be some, yeah, we, yeah, air quotes there. We, we need to be a little humble about right. that, but we can certainly help, right? We can do what we can to help with other countries to create opportunities and, and help address corruption mm -hmm. and criminality. Like we can do things, but that's not, that's not a quick fix. That's a long-term fix. Um, 
I talked about burden sharing. That's earlier. a lot of beers. I think fixed. the idea. A lot of beers. That's <laughs> a lot of beers fixed. Yeah, a lot of beers. A lot of beers to fix that. Um, I talked earlier about burden sharing, and and not to say that migrants are a burden, but they are. They they are in so far as they stress our systems to process them. That's that's the burden we talk about here. Mm-hmm. But um, the idea that. It shouldn't just be only the United States that could provide safe haven for these people. Can we help other countries in the hemisphere provide safety and security and settlement for some of these groups? So you think about a lot of the Venezuelans who were in Ecuador, um, who were settled there for quite a while until COVID hit their economy too, right? Um, they they provided right. work authorization and school, like they had pretty much resettled. So could we help other countries do that? That's some of the international negotiations. So the some of the Americas gotcha. last year, the president had this de- Los Angeles declaration on migration, tried to get other countries to commit to looking at these things. Um, and then it's also like recognizing that this is now a multi-billion dollar criminal industry. And right. I can't blame the migrants for trying this, but we sure as heck could go after the criminals who are making buck off of desperate people. Right. Um, And so the administration is trying to do that and trying to work with other countries to really go after the criminal organizations that are facilitating and encouraging more and more of this. Right. Um, I I think that's something else that we need to do. Um, Yes, we need to address more legal avenues for people to arrive. I think these parole programs are a start, but I, you said it at the very beginning, could we create some sort of external asylum application process that's better than parole, uh, that doesn't take as long as the refugee process? By the way, the Biden administration also mm-hmm. announced that they are going to uh, tr- triple the number of refugees resettled from Latin America to 20,000, which would be great because last year I think we settled less than 2,000 <laughs> from all of Latin America. So, so if they upsetting. can do that. All right. That would be great. Okay. Um, oh, so God, create new avenues number. and new okay. ideas about how how people can can ask for some in safe places, but mm-hmm. not coming to the border. Um, and then right. what we do with people who arrive at the border. And here's where I think we have the hardest time, because our traditional system was built for a tiny number of people, and with a tiny number of people, decisions could be made relatively quickly about who qualified and who didn't and then who was deported and the numbers were small enough that you know if not everybody got deported it didn't substantially add to the number of undocumented people in the country that's not the case anymore continuing to release people into the country into an ever-growing backlog i mentioned five years for an immigration case to be heard five years so somebody who is released in the country at the border right now has to wait five years before they can know if they can come. And during those five years, at least until they get that asylum application formally filed in immigration court, which could be two or three years down the line, they have no ability to work. But they have been allowed into the country by our government. So this is not acceptable. This is this is not, that just allows, just not and if I'm a migrant and I say I have five years of safety and then I get to plead my case, I'll take it. I'll take that. Again, 20% approval rate, I'll take those odds. Like th- that's that's right. that's only allowing the migrants to continue to, to want to come. Um, so we need to find a way 
to make these decisions fairly, but much faster. Mm. And continuing to so you're funnel them when into someone an ever-growing backlog. Gotcha. Yeah. So you're saying when, when someone, someone comes, comes in at the and, border. Mm-hmm. And they then say, I want asylum. They're then allowed to be in the country for five, and it can be five years until their case is heard. But yep. they're not allowed to work. Yep. It's like, not until why they get an asylum case filed. Yeah. Yeah. They can't support themselves. And so, but See, that you know, what does that mean? Me. <laughs> they're eventually going to work underground. Like, let's be realistic. Yeah. So what we have proposed is that we need to create essentially a border asylum system that is separate from our existing immigration court system. We need to hire a whole bunch of new people. We need to create facilities and uh, adjudication capacity at the border. And we need to provide facilities where people can get sort of all the services they would need. So medical services, legal help, mental health help. How do they file that claim? What's the legal requirement? By the way, when people actually get attorneys who can weigh their claims and understand the legal standards, many people understand at that point they don't qualify. And then they're like, okay, what are my other options? Where else do I go, right? People think that all that lawyers do is file these claims and allow people to stay, but they actually do a lot of screening too. So, you know, can we get them legal help? to decide whether or not they really have a viable claim. Um, You know, all of that, but we have to really shrink the time it takes to get these cases processed from years to at most months. Now, this is where there's a lot of tension because asylum advocates will say it takes a long time to put together these cases. And frankly, we don't have enough legal capacity right now of people willing to help them and able to help them for the numbers that we have. So we need to figure out how we address that. We need to hire a whole bunch of more adjudicators. We can't just, you know, detail existing judges from existing courts because then their existing case backlogs just wait while they're doing cases at the border. Um, We need to create, I think, a new system. Um, But it needs to be fair and everybody needs to believe it's fair. It has to have due process, but it has to be condensed. It, It just has to be because we have to let people know if they can stay before they have put down roots and made a home here. And that seems in some ways, I think probably unfair, but it's cruel the other way too, to let somebody stay for five years and make their life. I mean, if they brought their child when they were five, they doubled their lifespan. Totally. And then you say, and then, and this is like all they know, you know, and then, yeah. Yeah. So I think like those are the things we need to consider. Those are hard choices. Yeah. Yeah. Those are hard choices, um, but we need to think differently. We can't we can't just say, you know, put more resources into our existing system. Um, I think we might have been able to do something about that five or six years ago if we'd started when we first started seeing the kids. Now it's too late. The backlogs are too big. So we need to think differently. But that's going to require Congress. They would have to authorize and approve. Yeah, and Congress is working um, so efficiently right now. <laughs> You know, <laughs> they 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 can't seem to agree whether or not to stay in session right now. They they have had to uh-huh. voice. They've had to vote like a roll call vote every time they wanted to adjourn over the last four days. I, I you know, I, I you know it's hard, but but that's what you know theoretically. Yeah. Uh-huh. Theoretically, they were elected to govern, and governing means doing something like 
solving problems and making decisions. And Uh sometimes it means negotiating with the other side and cutting a deal because that's the best you can get right now and take it and then go for the next thing. So, you know, I, I wish I was more optimistic, but everybody is okay, it's, it's, it's one of those, <laughs> it's, it's one of those cliche, everybody's complaining at the, about the border and nobody's really working to solve it, right? Like, yeah. stop complaining about it. Stop pointing at the other guy as being at fault and take it upon yourself to really knuckle down, do the hard work. Look at all the angles, balance all the interests, because that's what it's about. You got to balance everybody's interests, including ours Mm -hmm. as a country, our neighbors, the migrants, everybody has an interest here. We have to balance them all. And what can we do? Do something rather than arguing about it and having excuses why you couldn't do anything. And that's why you're the director of this at the BPC. (laughs) (laughs) You got, you're trying to unite both sides to be like, all right, guys, this is not working. I'm trying. You know? Sometimes I'm uh, trying to shame them. But, you know, but what's interesting is that I have been. I think I, both work. I, I, I say that facetiously because I've had, you know, three quarters of a beer. But the truth <laughs> is we talk to people in Congress all the time. We actually talk to members, Republicans and Democrats who are trying, who really are trying to figure out how to do this. They're yeah. having a hard time getting their compatriots to come along because the politics of this have become so really toxic. Insane. Um, Absolutely insane. So we do our best. And I would love it if more Americans would come along and really encouraging those, rather than pillaring everybody who's trying to, you know, trying to craft something for not making it exactly what you want, cheer them on for trying. Cheer them on for doing what Congress is supposed to do. Participation ribbon. Which is legislate. Legislate means right. actually passing laws and getting them enacted. It doesn't mean Teresa, you're being way too greedy right now. You can't. <laughs> you can't expect them to actually pass stuff. Come on, pass legislation. Oh my goodness, the cr- crazy legislature concept. passing legislation. <laughs> Insane. Exactly. The more world beers. we live That's in they now, need. they need more beers. Literally. <laughs> They just all need to go out, have a couple beers, and then maybe they'll agree go with each other. Go out and have a drink. Right? Well, you know, I oh. guarantee you if they all go right. out and have some drinks together, they'd probably get to know each other better, and maybe that would lead to some better legislating. Or uh, or some fist fights. You don't know. <laughs> all right. Before we go, last two cents. What do you think about whole the migrants being transported across the country without any real communication? Um, certainly certain Republican elected officials are trying to score political points by taking advantage of uh, vulnerable migrants. Um, That is clear uh, from the way they're Mm -hmm. handling it. And some are, some are really blatantly doing this and others are less blatantly doing this. Um, That having been said, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas and Governor DeSantis of Florida, not naming naming names. Um, that having been said, it is true that these small communities along the U.S.-Mexico border mm-hmm. have been handling the influx of thousands of migrants for years with much less resources than cities like New York or Washington, D.C. 
or Chicago. And to have the mayor of New York complain that they can't manage it, I have to I have to just say, I'm sorry. You can figure it out. Yeah. Um right. especially when you're considering that these small towns have been dealing with it for years. And so I don't agree with the methods that are used by some of these elected officials to try to raise this issue. But there is a bit of a point that they have, which is it's it shouldn't be all on the border states or the border communities to bear the majority of the uh, of the I'll use it again burden, but the but the responsibility of managing totally. these migrants who arrive with nothing um, for years and years and years, while other elected officials in other parts of the country aren't, and Washington and Congress are not really doing what they need to do to 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 fix it so um yeah. i think that you know there's there is there is a little bit of you know it should it's not fair that it's all on us right um and and there's you know this is a it's not really a uniquely american thing here i mean greece was at the forefront of all of the migrant arrivals um yeah from North Africa and the Middle East for years. And they essentially told the rest of the EU that was sitting comfortably, we're not gonna hold them here anymore. We need help. They're gonna go to your countries right. because it's not fair to us that we are the ones dealing totally. with this just because we happen to be the ones on the outside of the EU. So, you know, this idea that we are a country um, and as a country, we should figure out as a country how we manage this. Uh, you know, the, the recent kind of dust up between Governor Polis of Colorado, who's a Democrat, when he said, oh, yeah, the city of Denver, the state, we're, we're sending migrants to New York. And the New York mayor is like, wait a minute. What do you mean? Like, yeah, we've actually been doing that for a while. We've been coordinating with your NGOs. We're doing the same thing you are, because once they get there, if they're not trying to stay in New York, you're helping to send them somewhere else. We all need to start talking about this. Like, <laughs> there, yeah. there has to be a better way. I understand um, the concept of being like, we need to disperse people in order to, everyone needs to pitch in. But there's ways if to we're going to release not people in, like, into the country on their own. Yeah, if we're going to, if this is, this is the thing we have to understand. Like, why is this a problem? Because the U.S. government is releasing people at the border into the United States and they are on their own. They're on their own. Yeah. Once they are out of CBP custody at the border, they are on their own to figure out where they're going to get to in the United States, how to comply with any immigration order they've had, how to make a living and get money. They, they're put, they're literally on their own. And so these shelters and churches and non-governmental organizations and, and nonprofits along the border have been raising money, millions of dollars to buy bus mm -hmm. tickets and plane tickets to help people get someplace else, trying to help them find pro bono counsel who can help them figure out their immigration case. Teresa, thank you so much for having this conversation. This was so needed and so important and you provided fantastic insight to the chaos that is immigration <laughs> in America at the moment. I hope that your listeners have learned something, maybe something a little beyond Absolutely. the headlines that they're seeing and the pontificating of mm -hmm. politicians uh, on both 
sides of the aisle here. Um, you know, hopefully it doesn't drive them to drink more of these beers. Um, but <laughs> I would encourage them. Hopefully it will drive them to lean on their leaders, lean on their local officials, lean on their federal government officials, lean on their elected officials to do some legislating, to do some hard work. Mm -hmm. Don't, you know, if, if everybody comes back to you in two years and says, vote for me because the other guy wouldn't let me secure the border, I'd want to ask a whole lot more questions about what exactly did you do to try to work with them? How did you try to get yeah. them on side? Did you, who did you talk to? on the other side of the aisle to try to make that happen. Um, yeah. Try to get beyond the, the pat talking points and get them to do some work. It's not easy. It's hard work. They have to do some hard work, uh, but mm -hmm. we need to, we need to get them to do it. Yeah. I think that is a great note to end on. And uh, just as everyone views this crisis from my own personal opinion, view it with some compassion and some uh, understanding that you, that could be you and your situation. You just were born into a different life and a different family in a different place. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, but uh, Teresa, thank you so much. This has been another great episode of Bureaucracy and I'm your host, Emily Gross, and I'll be back next week. <laughs>